Thanks for tuning into this episode of Thank You Now What, a podcast about life after service. I'm your host, Matt DeVivo. The show is produced by Ben Murray. On today's episode, we spoke with Dr. Josh Apple. Josh is a U.S. Air Force veteran, having served both as a pararescueman and emergency medical physician. Josh made his way through medical school while serving as an enlisted PJ and was practicing as a civilian doctor before accepting a commission to become a military officer. Now, after retirement from the Air Force, Dr. Apple serves as the chief of emergency medicine at his hospital. We were able to sit down in person together on a recent trip to Arizona. You know, the best thing that ever happened to me was not getting into medical school that first time because it just allowed me to go and be a PJ. And anyway, I graduated high school in 85 and med school in 2005. And then in August of 2005, we had our 20 year high school reunion. And I went back and they're like, oh, Josh, what are you doing? I'm like, I'm a doctor. Really? I was certainly not the best student in high school. And, And so people were surprised that I was actually a doctor. I didn't tell him I'd been a doctor for like three weeks. <laughs> we hope you enjoy our conversation. Thanks for listening. So there's a screen on that. Uh, and it's best that the screen just sticks out. So Is that the screen? Yes. Yeah. So however you put it on there. And then sometimes I have to tell people with long hair not to let it rustle the mic. But I think we're good. Is that a joke? No. <laughs> well, we've got dudes with like long beards oh, yeah, too, like... you know, how everyone likes their friggin' beard. So just to clear the air, I'm a smart ass by nature. Okay. Uh, so, and usually when I'm nervous, I'll come off with smart ass comments. Okay. Well, I'll feel, I'll feel right at home. Good. I figured. This is a safe space right. for people like us. It might not be considered a safe <laughs> yeah. space for everyone. Right. I know for those right. listening, but. Uh, yeah. Okay. We, and then people will always ask, like, can I swear? Yeah, you can fucking swear. Who cares? Uh, yeah. Who listens to this, you know? So maybe I'll start by saying you are the you're the fourth Tucsonian we've had on. Great. You're the third uh, Air Force vet that we've had on. All right. But you also texted me in your, like, uh, in your, like, show prep notes that we both happen to love Nelson and he's been on the show. Yeah. I don't know if you caught his episode or not. I did. Oh I, yeah. So my research, you know, I <laughs> had to you know who I'm talking to. Give you a 48 you know. hour window to do your homework. Yeah. Show. Right. And so I listened to that and I just reiterated the, the fact that I just love that guy. Like he's got something for sure. You know, he when does, he was yeah. talking about uh, running for mayor and how he probably couldn't win. Cause it's, I'll bet he could win. Uh, yeah. He's just that I, personable, and he's got that art of when he talks to you, you feel like you're his buddy. Like right. I feel like we're buddies. Right. He he may even, I'm sure like he knows who I am and stuff, and we contact each other once in a while. But like he just makes that connection, and I think if he could do that on a campaign trail, he would uh, win people over liberal or not. Yeah. I often joke that uh, I would be his deputy. Mayor, I'd, I'd be the uh, the Pence to his Trump, you know, <laughs> like <laughs> even it out a little bit because yeah. uh, I I can't imagine how exhausting it is being Nelson Miller. Yeah, well, the, I mean that's the thing about him is like you know you have important people who know they're important or they kind of like you know f- feel like it. he's he's the opposite kind of person where right. he makes everybody around him feel important and welcome and like that's I think that's why. 
everybody gravitates to them. Yeah, I know, right? It, it's uh, it's a gift for sure. Uh, so he is a great guy. We could probably talk the whole time about how much we love Nelson Miller. Yeah, my favorite quote from that episode, I think I still remember it. It's he said something like, uh, you know, sometimes they said I was too hard on the guys because uh, when they, you know, if they were fucking up, I would I would let them know. Um, you know, because we were in an elite unit, so I have to let them know. And if they're doing outstanding, cool, that's why we hired you. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> uh, yeah. Exceptional, I, yeah, that's the standard. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Um, which like, you know, if guys, if, if we carry that into our post-military life, uh, we have to make a couple adjustments. Yeah, you know? for sure. Yeah. Um, and I run into that here, yeah. you know, uh, at my place of work and, you know, COVID is a great example. Um, it was scary for a lot of people, right? They've never been in that stressful of a situation even as a as a doc right this was the scariest thing they've ever done yeah uh and i'm like you can breathe right like nobody's shooting at you mm -hmm. like we're gonna be okay like protect yourself the best you can and so i really had to kind of adjust and realize you know who my audience is and who my team members are and and kind of bring them along and i think i got out a little bit in front of that uh, at the beginning, because I'm like, all right, let's dive into it. And some people were, were hesitant because I'm used to, you know, leading, you know, PJ teams or, mm -hmm. you know, military members that you, it's a different breed. And so I had to, that was a, a good learning point for me uh, with COVID and leadership that you got to kind of adjust that. One size does not fit all. Yeah. So. You think it changed? I don't want to, I, deliberately not using the word traumatized, but did it like permanently affect people that they had to go through, you know, a, a, an actual pandemic? Like it has altered a lot of people's worldview now, even yeah. going forward. And they'll probably never forget it. They like, even like, you know, the, like I grew up being a germaphobe and I was an SF medic, so I kind of can't be a germaphobe anymore. Yeah, right. But like when I was, when I was a kid, it was pretty germaphobic. And uh, you know, if I, talk to myself today and be like, hey, you know, cut that shit out. Like, it's stupid. Yeah. But in the past two years, we've created just a whole we new have, generation. Right. Yeah. Like, people driving in their cars by themselves with a mask on. I'm like, what are you doing? Like, don't give in to that fear. Uh, as far as permanently traumatized people, I don't like anything. You know, there's a, a spectrum of yeah. risk adversity and people tend to be less risk adverse and people tend to be more risk So like way more PPE uptake now? Yeah. Um, yeah, like before we'd have, you know, the flu would burn through the emergency department every year. Yeah. But now with all the testing and the mask requirements, like people are afraid to just be. And I that's would, unfortunate. I would be afraid. I was, I would be afraid if I was like a podiatrist. I would wear gloves for everything. I can't, and you I should. touch people's feet without gloves. You should see some of the feet I see. Oh, gosh. <laughs> I've been to the podiatrist and I'm like, you going to put gloves on or what? Like, you know, I mean, I showered and everything, but still. But it's, still. It's another person's feet. Yeah. I. Uh, That's what I'm worried about. Funny story. As a, as a flight doc, um, I took one of our PJs to the urologist who, because he had some neurologic issue and, uh, old 
old guy, old urologist, you know, he's probably in his 70s and he did not wear gloves and he just manhandled the sack. And I was like, wow, that is impressive. Like yeah. no gloves, just freehanding it. I'm Jesus. like, hmm, wouldn't do that. Yeah. I don't want to see him on uh, DRE day. <laughs> I know, right? That's so funny. So uh, I wrote down your like, your, your, jotted down like your general progression so you're yep. enlisted pj yeah uh then you're a pj doctor then a flight doctor then an er doc then a medical director and now you're chief of emergency medicine yeah oh wow, well, right. quite, wow. quite a run that was a busy that was a busy year right no let's get it so uh and you joined the air force in 94 yeah okay and first i want you to you know tell just you know, the scope of practice of a PJ and yeah. why is it a pararescueman, but it is a PJ. PJ, right. Because yeah. we can't spell. Okay. Right. The whole reason I ended up being a PJ um, was because I was turned down by every medical school in the country. Uh, I graduated from uh, ASU and I wanted to be a doctor. And so I applied to medical school and mm. life had been pretty easy for me up till then. I applied and strange thing happened. I got rejected. Uh, apparently medical schools, like good grades and experience and yeah. good MCAT scores. Who knew? Um, <laughs> and so I was looking for something to do, uh, and then just kind of stumbled across pararescue, um, and had real, no aspirations to join the military. I'd never thought of joining the military, being in the military. And I heard about pararescue and you know, their combat search and rescue. They kind of earned their uh, reputation in Vietnam, rescuing down pilots behind enemy lines, you know, hovering over the triple canopy and going down on the force penetrator. And mm. uh, a lot of silver stars, uh, Medal of Honor recipients, and just a noble uh, legacy. And I thought that was really cool. Yeah. Uh, it was 1992 and, uh, and the government was going to teach me how to skydive. And I thought that was pretty cool. Yeah. Right. So it wasn't really, you know, that I wanted to be part of this elite group or whatever. I was kind of looking for the adventure. And, you know, this is like pre 9-11, you know, 1992, there was not really a lot going on in the world. It was fairly safe space. Um, I think the biggest thing that happened was the Mogadishu um, yeah. And that was a one-time event, really. Yeah, 96-hour desert storm. Yeah, right. Uh, on, you watch it on TV. And uh, and so uh, much to the uh, chagrins of my parents, after graduating pre-med from Arizona State University, I enlisted in the military, you know, in the Air Force as an E3 because um, I wanted to be a PJ. You know, I didn't care about being an officer or anything. And yeah. uh, I just thought it was really cool. And... Didn't really know what I was getting into. That was really before internet and Google and all of that. And so I had this little brochure that said, oh, you got to do some stuff underwater and run. And I was like, eh, it sounds like Just fun. a quick, like, two-year. Yeah. How hard could it be, right? You know, like, I don't know how many times that phrase has gotten me in trouble, uh, <laughs> but a lot. Uh, so I really had no idea what I was getting into. Uh, and it was brutal. You know, it was tough. The... Uh, there's a 12 week selection course, which is like, you know, your cube course or buds or whatever, where there's you know about a 90% attrition rate, you know, they try and weed you out and, and see who can, uh, is it stand like, it. uh, voluntary withdrawal mostly? Yeah. 
right? right? The pool, the water work probably gets 90% of people, yeah. you know, the, the telltale sign that somebody's going to quit is if they say, oh yeah, I used to be a lifeguard. You're like, yeah. <laughs> All right. Cause it gives you a, just a new respect for the water, uh, just all of the water confidence stuff, the underwater knot tying, the buddy breathing, the ditching and donning and bobbing and all of that stuff. Just what's a what's a good sign? Like I'm just stupid enough that I don't fear drowning. You know what? Uh, my wife my wife asked me that. She's like, "How did you ever know like who was going to make it and who wasn't going to make it?" And you really didn't. Like some people were obvious. Like like my roommate, his name was Rock Rock Pifferini. Okay. Uh, Rock, if you're, li- if you're listening, I hope you, uh, I hope you're doing well. Um, hey, big football player, right? And we went through basic training together and everybody's like, Oh, Rock, you're going to be a PJ and Josh, what are you going to do when you fail out? You know, I'm like, um, <laughs> uh, and so you can imagine a guy named Rock in the water, uh, didn't do so well. And so he was gone after the first week, I think, you know, but pretty quickly. Mm-hmm. So you couldn't tell, you know, and there was some guys that were just really athletic, but they'd never really been pushed, you know, like everything was easy to them. So when you're right. buddy breathing and you got instructors like pulling your snorkel and taking your breath away, they're like, freak out. They can't handle it. Yeah. Um, and so it was just really, you know, you say one day at a time, but really it's more one event at a time, like just make it through the next event maybe i'll quit after the next event you know i didn't i never really thought about quitting but it was always you know just get to that next event yeah you know um but i think we had over 60 people start and we graduated six that ended up becoming pjs so pretty significant attrition rate you know yeah start with a barrack full of people and at the end you know you got your own bay (laughs) (laughs) yeah right Uh, that made me think just quickly is like our, so our, uh, you know, uh, thing in special forces, the rock, right. So which you, rock, ha- yeah. you have as well, but you know, we don't always have water or scuba guys do, but you take an athlete, whoever, and you put, you know, 70, 80, hundred pounds on their back and say, you know, this is, you have to take this everywhere for, you know, like the next month. Yeah. And then, you know, it just, it's the equalizer. Right. It made me think of, I was watching, uh, I don't know if you watch boxing, but you know, the, uh, the Fury Wilder fight was like a couple of years ago. Deontay Wilder was like, well, I think I was tired because my costume, my word of the ring was too heavy. The, the shit that he wore to <laughs> yeah, walk right. from his dressing room to the ring was heavy because he likes to him. wear a costume and that cost him the match. Like, oh, come on now. Yeah. Come on. Right. Yeah. I guess when you're that elite of an athlete or whatever, then any of those little changes can have an effect. But calories being off by a couple hundred. I've never been that dialed into anything. I mean, you can see me, right? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. So the thing is with the big guys and parachuting, right? You know, there's a weight limit on the, on the parachute. So, and I think it's like exit weight of like 350 pounds or something. So if you're already 280, whatever, you can't strap too much stuff on you. But a guy like my size, 150 pounds, you could strap a lot of crap to me. Yeah. And so it was like, oh, here, Apple, carry my stuff. You know, I'm like trying to waddle out of the aircraft with 200 pounds of stuff on yeah. me. It's like. That's um, all about the system. You're just yeah. a passenger. I so. know, right? Yeah. Anyway. Um, 
Do you know David Goggins? You know David Goggins, right? The, uh, I know of him. I've right. never met him. Okay. He's the guy who runs and calls everyone a bitch. Right? Yeah, yeah, right. That's the guy. Yeah. So he, I don't know how much you know about him, but he tried out for pararescue before he became a SEAL. Oh, wow. And he I always was, tell everybody that the SEALs didn't take me, so I became a Green Bray. And then I laughed for 10 minutes. <laughs> <laughs> so I remember him when he was a couple of classes after me. I had graduated and I had some bad fractures in my leg. And so I was kind of sticking around get, uh, healing. But I totally remember him. Um, and he'll attest to this, right? Like, he's honest about how his path and there's no yeah. doubt that the guy is super stud yeah um but i remember watching him in the water just freak out like they were doing buddy breathing um and it's where you know two guys and a snorkel i know it sounds like a, a dirty uh, video that you watch on tiktok but <laughs> uh two guys right you grab hands and and you have one snorkel and you pass the idea is that you pass your buddy the snorkel and then the instructors are on you and they're like taking your breaths um just torture it yeah. sucks and it's yeah. supposed to suck right yeah. uh but i remember watching him do it once and then just pop up with these big saucer eyeballs you know i'm like yeah. that guy's done but he had to go do it like it's seal training okay right? yeah and so i think that was just part of his progression i hope he doesn't mind me telling the story but uh it just really confirms you know what he says that you know he just wasn't in my right the right mindset and then just kind of transitioned and then yeah. like now he doesn't give a crap like he's just crushing stuff and um but i remember him and then i saw him doing like like this was years later like some pull-up challenge or something i was like i think i remember that guy and yeah. now and now look at him it's impressive when you see people like go through a legit transformation yeah right, right. and i saw you know Military is a great way to do it. Yeah, but, for sure. You know, people do it otherwise, but you know. I don't know what made me think of that story, but yeah. I'm just name dropping here. I'm like, trying to, I, I didn't know. Just for the record, is I'm that, not trying to say PJs are tougher than SEALs or anything. Right. I like the kid Nelson, like because he did that Jessica Lynch rescue. Yeah, I'm like, yeah, right. When you gotta rescue army people, you send in the SEALs. When you need to say, when you need to rescue seals, you send in the PJs. There you go. Yeah. I don't say that to his face, of course, because he's a Navy SEAL and he kicked my ass. But <laughs> I like to joke about that. You need him to get more uh, pararescue stuff up in the dry dens. Right. So we... Too much Army-Navy stuff. I know. We had a picture, uh, my teammate and I, who, who did the Latrell rescue, we donated a picture to the Trident uh, and it was up. Uh, on the wall for a while. This was early. This was after, I don't know, probably 2006. Yeah. Uh, and then we'd go and we'd sit in that booth and then the waitresses would come up and, and we'd be like, hey, what's that picture? And they'd be like, oh, I think those are people that died. I'm like, oh, right. <laughs> <laughs> right. Resurrected. <laughs> and they never got it, right? The yeah. two, it was yeah. funny. Yeah. I don't think that picture's up there anymore. Yeah, okay. Well, there's like five of them now, so maybe I'm just not going to that yeah. one. I'll have to check with them and see where that picture is. Yeah. Men's what, room, probably. Be, yeah. <laughs> uh, uh, before going on, what made you want to be a doctor in the first place? That's a great question. Um, she got there. You just took a detour. Yeah, right. And, and I always say, you know, the best thing that ever happened to me was not getting into medical school that first time because it just allowed me to, to go and be a PJ. And, you know, it took me 10 years 
after graduating from college, I think it was, it was a while. Mm -hmm. Anyway, I graduated high school in 85 and med school in 2005 and in May of 2005. And then in August of 2005, we had our 20 year high school reunion. <laughs> and I went back and they're like, oh, Josh, what do you do now? I'm like, oh, I'm a doctor. Really? Cause I was certainly not the best student in high school. And, yeah. and so people were surprised that I was actually a doctor. I didn't tell them I'd been a doctor for like three weeks. But, <laughs> no, but you still got it right under the wire. Yeah, right? Yeah. The only reason, you know, like some people like try to get in shape and stuff to go to their 20-year reunion. Like yeah. I went to med school so I could tell all the people that didn't like me in high school that I was now a doctor. Right. I, I, I actually think that's the only reason rental car companies carry like Corvettes and... Like, oh, yeah, for reunions? <laughs> yeah. All right. Yeah. <laughs> it's funny. Uh, I don't... So I, I'd always been interested in science and like the body and and things like that. And then uh, just the service part of it as well. I think it was a good mix for me and it was a challenge and I always liked the challenge. And You mean like you know, doing good, not like serving people? Serving people. Yeah. yeah through like, medicine. Yeah, yeah. right. Um, and so it seemed like a good blend and like I said, it seemed like it was one of those stretch goals. Like, well, I'm going to try and be a doctor. And, mm -hmm. and if I fall short, I'll, I'll do something else. But, um, and I kind of half-assed it that first time, you know, I, I'd never really failed at anything before med school. You know, I was a uh, competitive springboard and platform diver in college, you know, middle of the pack, but um, never really failed at anything I tried to do. And that was the first thing. Um, after that, I failed all the time, right? The first time you fail is the hardest, you know, yeah. after then it gets easier. Uh, but then, you know, that first active duty tour I did uh, just reiterated the fact that I wanted to be a doc. And so I, uh, I loved being a PJ. It was, uh, it was just great, like the camaraderie, the experience, like there's nowhere, nowhere else would you get that kind of experience. Mm -hmm. uh, and like I said, it was, the world was pretty calm at that time. You know, we were deploying for like Operation, yeah, Operation Southern Watch and Northern Watch, you know, in the no-fly zone over Iraq. And we do uh, space shuttle recovery missions. You know, we'd, we'd fly to Africa for the space shuttle launch in case it, crash then we'd deploy out over the atlantic ocean oh yeah uh, yeah and so like, were you like pulling astronauts out of the water and stuff that was my job really never happened but we okay. trained for it a lot <laughs> yeah, sure. and we had to stay at some pretty cool hotels in morocco and senegal and the gambia so totally cool yeah. um and so i love being a pj but i was like you know it's really a young man's game and i i still want to be a doc and I felt like after that first four years of active duty, it was probably time to transition out. And that's when I went to the reserve team in Tucson and then went back to the University of Arizona mm -hmm. to kind of reestablish a, a GPA and show people that I could actually get good grades. <laughs> you know, once I had that focus, you know, and some experience behind my back, you know, I was, I was like a laser beam. Like I could focus and I was just crushing school. And then I finally got in to the U of A medical school. Uh, and I was torn. I still 
loved being a PJ. I was a single guy, uh, just started medical school and my enlistment was coming up and, and I decided to re-enlist in the reserves for four years. I, I figured I got four years of med school, I'll do four years of PJ and then we'll, we'll take it from there. Mm-hmm. Uh, so on the Sunday of the UTA, I re-enlisted September 9th, 2001. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, so two days later, September 11th happened and, and the world changed and, uh, and my attitude changed like everybody, right? Yeah. Um, I was pissed and I was ready to go to war. Like, I've got a special skill set that the military is gonna need, let's, let's do this. Uh, we got activated and then deployed to Turkey. Ain't nothing going on in Turkey. Like we were supporting the no-fly zone in over Iraq, and yeah. the invasion was until March '03. Right. So nothing yeah. really going on. Um, and so my teammates, you know, we had this team meeting, and my teammates were like, "You've worked so hard to get in to med school. Stay in med school. Uh, te- you know, just spin the other guys up. You know, teammates up, and then come over like during." your summer vacation or whatever. And so that's what I did. And, yeah. uh, and that was not lost on me, right? Because that meant they, have to, they had to be deployed and they were away from their families while I was you know, right. sitting in school. And so that always kind of sat a little off with me or didn't sit well with me. That's got to be a great motivator, right? Right. Like, now I like, can't fail out. Right, <laughs> like, yeah. These guys are going to so kick my ass. Other people are sacrificing for you. Right. Yeah. Um, and so that certainly wasn't lost on me. And then... Um, I was getting ready to graduate in May of 2005 and we got activated again. And this time we were going to Afghanistan. Mm-hmm. And so I was like, I graduate May 13th. I'm like, I'm available May 14th. And, you know, a couple of days after graduation, I was on a military transport over to Afghanistan. And then 05 is also Red Wings, right? Yeah. yeah. And so... I went, uh, when we went to Kandahar, which is in South uh, Afghanistan, uh, we were pulling alert, you know, two days on, two days off and doing, you know, recovery missions, a lot of dust off stuff, you know, just going to pick up patients downrange that the army couldn't get to. Uh, And so we were doing some of that. And then on my off days, I'd walk over to the Kandahar hospital, army run hospital. And I was like, Hey, I'm a doctor. <laughs> what can I do? Right. Yeah. And so, you know, they let me help out and stuff. And then you just like anything, you know, you kind of earn your, you know, earn your keep. And, you know, they, if they see that you're fairly competent and stuff, they let you do more and stuff. And so, you know, I just got some amazing training uh, from those surgeons uh, in Kandahar. And I was doing all kinds of stuff that probably had no business doing. Uh, but you know, a wartime hospital, it's all hands on deck. And, yeah. you know, the ink was almost dry on my medical diploma at that time, <laughs> you know, like literally two weeks after, after graduating, you know, I hadn't done an internship or residency or anything, you know, I'm operating on, I'm pulling shrapnel out of Taliban and, and doing stuff. And yeah. uh, it was amazing. And, right, you know, the army is very rank conscious. Yeah, so is this, is someone eventually comes over and said, what is that an enlisted guy? Like, they're like, the hell well, they all call me doc, right? Everybody is a doc because I'm a yeah. doc. And 
like, hey, Doc Apple, what uh, what rank are you? You know, the the Chargers came around and and uh, and the Doc I was working with is like, oh, I'm a major, I'm a captain. Apple, I'm like, ah, oh, master sergeant. And they're like, ah, oh, no, really, what, major, captain? I'm like, no, I'm a master sergeant. She was like, what, what? I'm like, yeah, I'm not a military doctor. I'm a civilian doctor. She's like, what do I call you? <laughs> you know, right? Uh, I'm like, you can call me Josh. She's like, no, I can't do that. I'm like, sergeant? So I was like, call me master doctor. I'm like, How, how's that? Like, I don't know if you ever watched MASH, the Captain Corporal or whatever. The, but uh, I was a kid when oh, I watched MASH. Yeah, there are these things called reruns. Yeah, well, I, I mean, I was watching reruns as a kid. <laughs> oh, yeah, right. Yeah. I, don't, I don't even know when it came out. There's a one episode. Where I mean, I know Hawkeye's a smartass. Yeah. I know Radar. Yeah. You know, like, I'm, I remember the basics, but yeah. I was so young when MASH was even rerunning. I yeah, do. They, I do think those. I don't. I'm also don't know how to identify aircraft at all. Yeah. But the helicopters with just the two stretchers on the side in the bubble. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, we don't. They ride on that. Holy yeah, shit! Right. <laughs> uh, yeah. So I would do that, and yeah, the uh, that was a funny story with the the master doctor, mm. and then we. We're coming to the end of the rotation, and uh, a Marine had fallen off his Humvee into a river with all his kit on, and they couldn't find him. And so they activated us, and we did, like, I don't know if it was the only or first or whatever, but combat, search and rescue, swift water recovery mission, Mm. you know, where you got guys with guns posted while you're, like, in the river looking for for a survivor or, or a body. And that was toward the end. And uh, when we got back from that, it was time to pack up. And I was like, all right, time to go to my internship and, and be a doc. And I was looking forward to it. And, I, you know, my mind kind of wanders. And I was literally packing up my kit in the, in the ISU-90, you know, the big storage unit to put on the aircraft when we got a call. I said, oh, all, all personnel reports to the jock. You know, we need, you know, emergency meeting. And I was like, what's this all about? And uh, and I walked in, you could tell something was up. I mean, you could just feel it. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we got word that uh, a Chinook helicopter had just been shot down. This was June 28th, and we were scheduled to leave like July 1st. So I was about, I was literally done. And so it happened up north. Uh, so they needed us up in Bagram. So unpacked and, you know, like get your head back in the game because this is kind of a big deal. Uh, and so we loaded up, we flew up to Bagram and we initially got briefed and they're like, yeah, helicopter got shot down, 18 people on board and they're all presumed dead. Um, we're launching a recovery mission. And so half the PJs will go on that. Uh, but the other half will need to, we have another mission for you. There's still a four man SEAL team that's unaccounted for. And they, the helicopter that got shot down was the quick reaction force that was going in to save them. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they took a, an RPG as they were unloading the, the SEAL team off the back. And so they're like, we don't know where they are. You know, we have a general area, but we don't know. So you need to go try and find them. And so we were flying, you know, all night. You know, we didn't want to fly in the daytime. That's when they got shot down. And so we'd fly at night and we fly the 
HH-60 helicopter, which is smaller, more agile. <clears throat> and so we'd fly and we'd, you know, look and listen and, you know, listening for any radar or any uh, radio, anything. And mm-hmm. we weren't, we weren't getting anything. And, you know, all assets had stopped and was focused on, on finding these four guys. And uh, so we searched for a couple of days and didn't find anything. And, you know, after a couple of days, you're like, you know, the odds are dwindling that we're going to find anybody alive. And then on, uh, I think it was the 2nd of July, we got a note, like a village elder delivered a note to a Marine fire base. And it was from one of the SEAL team members, you know, Marcus, uh, it said, I'm alive, I'm injured, uh, I'm being cared for by these villagers and Taliban's closing in. Yeah. Uh, and so we had to pitch our rescue plan to the Navy captain who was in charge of the whole operation uh, and the Army Night Stalkers, that's who got shot down the first time. Um, they submitted a plan too. And I was like, you know, they're going to send the Army, right? They, they want to go like... Right. For, I don't know, it seemed like the thing that they were going to do. And, and so we pitched this plan and then the uh, Navy captain's like, Air Force, you got the rescue. And I was like, holy crap, really? <laughs> like, you know, because we've been, uh, I don't know how many times I've been, uh, you know, on the launch pad, you know, or deploying, you know, ready to go and then they cancel or whatever. Yeah. So I was like, and I still didn't think they were going to launch it. Like, I don't know if it was protective or what, but uh, didn't feel like they were really gonna, like this was actually gonna happen. And so we created a plan, you know, we're like, all right, uh, I think it was like 10,000 feet altitude. It was really high up in the Hindu Kush. And so- You can fit like two guys on a helicopter. Right, Uh, so there's two pilots, flight engineer, the gunner, and then the PJ team. Uh, And so they decided we're going to just strip everything off of the helicopter that we don't need. So we got rid of the mini guns, all of the ammo. And then we took all the Kevlar out of the, you know, the Kevlar flooring out of the, out of the helicopter. Cause it was so heavy. Yeah. For everybody who doesn't understand why it's cause the air is thinner yeah. up higher. You need the thrust from the helicopter. And so as you go up in altitude, you get to carry less weight. Yeah. Thanks for explaining that. Um, I always wondered why we did that. No. <laughs> it makes sense now. I thought they yeah. were just trying to save some of that stuff in case we got you shot down. You never want to be the guy left off. You always got to have the special skill. Yeah, right? Yeah. Uh, so we were totally reliant on supporting forces for protection. And uh, and we were going in at night. And uh, we launched that night and flew in and you know you could hear the radio chatter from the a10s and the ac-130 gunships and stuff and there was just people all over that area mm-hmm. uh, and i just remember thinking you know like are they gonna send us into this like i was nervous and i didn't and i couldn't tell if i was nervous because they were gonna send us in or if they weren't gonna send us in right because we know that marcus is down there and that he probably doesn't have a long time, you know, doesn't have a lot of time. There's probably yeah. a pretty short window to get him out. Yeah. Uh, and then we got cleared into the LZ and then it was like, all right, time to go to work. And I just kind of felt this calm yeah. come over me. And, uh, and then the intel on the landing zone was horrible. We, uh, 
it was really like did you actually yeah and we yeah were, right just painting behind you <laughs> so you funny. actually set the the helicopter down yeah oh yeah um is that tricky or not for me well yeah <laughs> yeah i've never had a problem flying a yeah, helicopter no. either. uh but so the picture depicts you know is pretty accurate on the right side is like sheer mountain and then there's this little outcropping uh and then on the left was like a cliff mm. and so i was sitting on the left side and my buddy was on the right side and you know the gunner and the flight engineer and the pilots are talking and as we're coming in you know we brown out which is just all the dirt in right. the air goes up and you can't see anything and so i hear you know stop right you know kind of Usually you try and talk in a calm voice because you want to keep everybody calm and stuff. Right. But there was some uh, expediency in this voice. It said, stop right. And then, okay. you know, a few seconds later, I felt just drifting. And then I hear, stop left. And I'm like, oh, man, we're going over that cliff. And then just uh, the the pilot's name was Spanky. That was his call sign because uh, he looks like Spanky from the Little Rascals. <laughs> and if you if you saw a picture, you, you would agree. Um so he slammed it. We ended up getting the helicopter down. As soon as the, the tension came out of the wheels, you know, I was like, go. And we got that door open and it was just, you know, all the dust and the dirt were on NVGs and, you know, we're up against a cliff and, a, and it was just chaos. And, mm. um, and so the survivor's supposed to come at you from the two o'clock position and there's nobody there. And we see two guys coming from the rear. And, like, and we know there's bad guys there. And so, you know, weapons up and I'm like, good guy, bad guy. You know, I just keep saying that in my head, you know, good guy, bad guy. And then they keep coming. And I see that they're in like Afghan garb. You know, they're not in uniform. And so, you know, safety comes off and, you know, I've got my target and I'm like, good guy, bad guy. I'm like, I want to shoot this guy. I don't want to shoot somebody I'm not supposed to shoot. And then um, they kept getting closer and then over the intercom I hear, it's, it's our PC, right? Our, our precious cargo. And and so uh, we grab them, there's two of them. I don't know if you saw the movie, but it's like this prolonged, you know, like this big, nice landing in this big field. And then Mark Wahlberg has this moment with his kids. I'm like, <laughs> I haven't seen the movie. Yeah, uh, yeah it's it's funny. Uh, all the other stuff is, is pretty realistic, like for the, the SEAL team stuff. Like it was all based on autopsy reports. And so that was really true to life, but the rescue was kind of okay. dramatic. So wait, saying. it's Marcus, but he's in Afghan clothes. Yeah. Okay. Cause most of his clothes, I guess got blown off and you know, he was a mess. Yeah. Uh, but he's like a big dude, right? Big dude. Yeah. Yeah. So I was almost going to say like, well, maybe they're disguising him, but you know. Yeah. Right. No, I think he just, I don't think he had any other clothes. Okay. Right. Um, and so him and his, the guy that was kind of caring for him, Gulab, uh, they both approached and I'm like, we don't have time to sort this out. Like, so we grabbed them both and authenticated them and got them on board and then we took off. Um, and for rescue missions, like that's the most dangerous time when you have the pilot or you have the person you're rescuing and, and you're leaving. Cause oftentimes, you know, they, Vietnam did this a lot, the SAR traps, where they let you get get the person. Yeah. And then as you're leaving, you know, your guard's down a little bit. And, Five for one. Right. And then they just blow you out of the sky. Yeah. So uh, heads was on a swivel, you know, we're just lots of chaos going on and then taking care of Marcus. 
after we kind of cleared the valley and I, I just remember looking at him and going, man, I've never seen anybody look more tired or beat up than that guy did. Like mm. he was a mess. And then we got, uh, we landed at a mil uh, Marine fire base and there was a C-130 that was going to transport him to, um, to Bagram. And, uh, and he looks at us and he's like, Hey, I want to, I want to walk to the airplane. I don't want you guys to carry me. And back to what you said, you know, he's a big dude. He's like six, five, you know, even all yeah. beat up, he's still, you know, 260 pounds. And I was like, sure, man, whatever, whatever you want. I'm like, here, just like, lean on me. You know, yeah. like, yeah. uh, that would have been like a monkey humping a football trying to carry that guy. You know? huh. What, I mean, what else? Like, what was some of your, how did your conversation seem like with him? Like, you know, actually, I think I asked Nelson about, you know, talking to Jessica Lynch. Yeah. And she's just kind of like still just, you know, out of it or, or you know, trying to get her bearings or probably like knew she was getting rescued and, and really was just like letting everyone else do the work. And <clears throat> or I don't know, I'm not putting my, my own spin on yeah. it. Yeah. But uh, like, you know. You see someone and you talked about how he looked, but how did he sound, you know? Yeah, and his voice matched his appearance. Mm -hmm. Like, you could tell he was just beat up and he's just like, just get me out of here. Like, just, <clears throat> we didn't really have a whole lot of conversation, you know, with the rotors and everything spinning. It was loud. And, mm -hmm. um, and so we just kind of sent him on his way. And, uh, and then we didn't, I never really heard from him for, probably two years and then because his name was classified like that whole mission was classified for a while and nobody even knew his name and yeah. uh, it was all secretive for some reason yeah. uh and then they not to mention his own like you know personal strife but all of his buddies just died too. yeah right I, plus i would be in no freaking right, mood right plus 18 people trying to rescue you i mean it's got a way on you for yeah. sure yeah. um and then a reporter from the New York Times or somebody was doing a story on the rescue. Like, I don't know how she heard about the story, but then was like interviewing us and stuff. And then she found Marcus and I thought she was using me to get to him because I knew who he was, but I, I didn't know she did, um, but she did. And she ended up getting in touch with them and she wrote this story for, I forget if it was the New York Times, somewhere. Um, but then like a couple of days after the story ran, my phone rang and it was him. He's like, thanks, bro. I was like, hey, no problem. And we just kind of started talking like, like nothing ever. Like we were best buddies, you know, like, like he didn't even have to say who it was. He was just like, thanks, bro. Mm. And I was like, yeah. So, uh, <clears throat> excuse me. So after that, then we kind of, we, we've been in touch and, um, and it's funny, he called me when they were talking about doing the movie and stuff. And he's like, Hey, you want to play you in the movie? And I was like, I kind of want to play me in the movie. <laughs> I was like, that'd be, I don't know, that's weird. And I'm like, plus you could get somebody way better looking and taller to play me in the movie. And, uh, well, everyone on screen is short anyway. Right. And they already had Mark, Mark Wahlberg playing Marcus. Yeah. He could have played me. Well, uh, Mark Wahlberg can just play every character, right? It's true. 
He's that talented. <laughs> I don't know if talent's the word. <laughs> uh, he did that in the, yeah. uh, in the Boston Marathon movie, right? Like play, Oh, no, he uh, plays one guy who's just at every place. I think you're thinking of Eddie Murphy in uh, Coming to America. <laughs> yeah, that too. <laughs> no, Walt, did you ever see the, uh, the movie about the Boston Marathon? I didn't. He's I, didn't like a, I think he's like a cop, but he's like at every like critical juncture oh, yeah. of the entire thing yeah yeah he's, he's a special kind of uh, yeah. movie star i think my favorite movie of his is still boogie nights though right yeah. you know that was a prosthetic right <laughs> well i mean it's a good movie too <laughs> <laughs> it's, uh, the first you know hour and 45 is, right. in, yeah. is uh yeah. enjoyable too right. yeah it's funny um great soundtrack too right one yeah the, one of the best movie soundtracks yeah. mm-hmm. i lived through that era sort of Okay. We, uh, I took disco lessons as a, uh, as a elementary school kid, <laughs> like it was the height of the disco era okay. and, uh, and they had disco lessons before school for some reason. And it's totally normal. So, right. I, it sounds weird as I'm telling this story. Uh, so my buddy and I were in the back, uh, you know, getting our groove on and you have to kind of, you get to like free dance in the beginning and then you have to go into the. Right. actual moves and so uh, my buddy and i were dancing we we did the bump and the and we were in the back and uh, you know we we're bumping hips and uh and the instructor's like hey you two no touching back there and the entire class turned around and looked at us <laughs> i think that was a very traumatic time in my life because i was like well we we weren't touching not touching we were bumping i was like uh, it was funny <laughs> you may want to okay. edit that part out. No, no, that I won't was edit that out. <laughs> but yeah, I mean that is still like I can still close my eyes and see the entire class looking at me. Hmm. No touching, boys. I'm like, oh, I didn't go to that reunion, by the way. That 20 year reunion. <laughs> no. I skipped that one. Okay. Hey, weren't you the guy that? No, that was. Hmm. Anyway. So back to the movie. Who actually plays you? Uh some guy that was there like because they filmed it in Wait, some guy that no i'm the sorry set, no at the, at the movie set oh, okay. yeah some guy in afghanistan uh so they filmed it in new mexico and that's where the pararescue training school is mm. and so they had a bunch of guys there that you know could fill in and do the stuff and okay. they had a guy that fit the uniform or whatever and um Nothing against him, but the, I feel like they, if they were trying to represent um, a more fitting character, they would have got somebody younger and more handsome and in better shape. <laughs> Don't we all want that? <laughs> right. You, you, the irony of being portrayed in a Hollywood movie and then you buy somebody that's less flattering than you, right? Yeah. So well, they that. don't really hand out those roles to like a Tom Cruise or a, no, you know. No, yeah. no. And I was almost on. Was it your name in the credits? Or was it P- like PJ1? PJ1, yeah, yeah, that's me. Okay. Mm-hmm. Nice. Right. Big it's better time. than being like Street Thug 1 in a different movie. <laughs> yeah, right? or Grip. Right. I'm not sure what the Grip does or Best Boy. Our, well, if our producer was here now, he would know. He knows oh, all that stuff. Yeah. Key grip, best boy. Yeah. I don't think he's a best boy. Not the best boy. He's a good boy. Good boy, but not the best boy. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> uh, 
so we got Marcus, and then we kind of learned the fate of everybody else, and that he was, in fact, you know, the lone survivor. Right. Uh, and so next would be a recovery mission. And this was the one that really freaked me out because I was like, they know we're coming. Right. They know where we're going. They've already lost. They lost Marcus. They wanted him. Uh, and they're probably pretty pissed off. And so I felt like this was the one that they're going to they're gonna shoot us down and yeah. it's going to be the end of it. Um, and then to emphasize that feeling, uh, we had uh, what's called a ramp ceremony. You know the ramp ceremony where... Uh, you take the deceased and then you put them on the transport plane and they fly them to a launch duel or wherever. And, and so they had recovered all 18 of the Chinook crew and the SEAL team. And they found the, that Marine that we were looking for uh, who had, had died. And so the whole base was out on, on the ramp. Uh, and 19 Humvees came by, each with a flag draped casket over it and you know everybody's presenting arms and there's not a dry eye in the in the crowd and you know like this was the day before we like we knew we were going and i was like they gonna have another one of these in a couple of days and the weird things you think about in times like that and i was like i wonder if we draw as big a crowd you know <laughs> like it's a pretty yeah. good crowd yeah. um and it was uh, it was the fourth of july and so it just kind of, you know, it was almost poetic. You know, I could see the headlines, you know, search and rescue crew killed on 4th of July after rescuing Navy SEAL. And I don't know, it's just weird thoughts that going through your head when you're kind of inbound for something like that. Um, and so we recovered uh, Mike Murphy and Danny Dietz on the 4th of July. And uh, again, we went in light with hopes of support of, a-10s and AC-130s, uh, but we couldn't land because it was on the side of a mountain. And so we had to drop the hoist. And so, you know, to hold, to drop a hoist, you have to basically hold a hover. Right. And so one of us, you know, one crew held hover and, and lowered the hoist and got bodies on board and, and the other aircraft circled, you know, to draw fire. <laughs> like, what could possibly go wrong, right? And but just seeing all of the the tracer fire from the uh, the gunships and the eight tens was, I was thinking, you know, I'm like, this is the coolest Fourth of July fireworks ever, you know. But they were all going in the wrong direction, right? They were going down instead of up, uh, and so we uh, we got them out, and then next week I was starting my internship. I was like Jesus. knee deep in it. I was like, what the hell just happened? You know, like yeah. uh, one way to get your mind off of things is just to be buried in a 80, 80 work week internship, you know, yeah. where stuff's coming at you with a fire hose. Did everyone talk about their summer vacation? Yeah, right. They did. Um, and I was late. Uh, yeah, I was supposed to start July 1st. And yeah. I just called them up. I'm like, I'm not going to make it. And that's kind of all I said. And they knew I was in the military and they knew I was overseas. But I'm like, I'm not going to make it. Do what you got to do. Right? right. Fire me, whatever. Uh, I got I got things I got to do. Uh, but they accommodated me and I kind of jumped in when I got back. And then uh, did my internship and then moved to 
Albany, New York for my emergency medicine residency, which is three years and, uh, and started doing CrossFit. Yeah. And, uh, couple months into it, I was looking on the wall and they had these hero wads, you know, CrossFit, you know, the, yeah. the whole hero wad thing, you know, yeah. the workouts named after people. And I looked up there and I was like, Murph, I was like, I wonder if that's the same Murph that I recovered. And so I looked it up and sure enough, you know, Michael Murphy, um, there was this workout that he did he called it body armor. It's a mile run, 100 pull-ups, 200 push-ups, 300 squats, and then another mile run but you do it wearing body armor. And so when he died, the CrossFit community named it Murph. And so people did that workout in honor of Michael Murphy. And so that Memorial Day, I did did Murph on Memorial Day. And it was really cool. Um, It allowed me to kind of just embrace the suck and think about things and um, put some effort into memorializing these guys, you know, not just Michael Murphy, but kind of everybody that had paid the ultimate sacrifice. I'm like, this is a good way to spend Memorial Day, right? Just mm-hmm. putting in some effort and just embracing the suck a little bit. And so the next year I had the whole gym do it. And we had a little barbecue afterwards and the energy was just awesome, right? Like everybody just kind of pulling together. It was really a lot of teamwork, camaraderie, uh, and everybody felt good afterwards. And I was like, this could be a thing. And, um, and then I moved to moved back to Arizona to start uh, my first real job <laughs> as an ER doc at the University of Arizona. And I joined a CrossFit gym here in Tucson. Uh, and I brought the idea to him like, hey, what do you think about doing this as a fundraiser or whatever? And so we did it as a, a local fundraiser and raised some money. And then I thought, this, this should be a national pastime like this should be something that people do on memorial day and that's when i first contacted uh dan murphy said hey i got this idea (laughs) you know and i i still remember the conversation he said so let me get this straight you're gonna have people pay to do a workout at their gym to memorialize michael i was like yeah it's his workout and it's just a way of getting people together. And he's like, yeah, sure. Good luck with that. Right. Cause I wanted his permission. I didn't want right. to do something in his son's name without his permission. He's like, yeah, good luck with that. And I don't think he really had any expectation or any idea where it would go. And, and so we did it the first year and, um, had about 7,000 people participate and it was just word of mouth and a Facebook page. <clears throat> And so the next year we did it and it was over, over 10,000 people. And this was just basically my wife and I running this and, you know, we stuffed like 10,000 shirts into these little envelopes and stuff. So and, you're doing it like across the country. Yeah. Yeah. So it was national starting, uh, 2011. Using like the CrossFit network. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Um, and, but it didn't even have to be CrossFit, you know, anybody could do it. You could do it at school or whatever. Right. Yeah. Uh, and so the next year, you know, after stuffing all those shirts and it was, it's kind of a disaster. I have no, I had no business doing anything, you know, on that scale, you know, we got, um, forged Threadworks, um, an apparel company who was owned by a Navy SEAL who was a teammate of Michael's. And so it was a perfect match and they ended up doing the shirts. And then the next year they just took over the operation because it was, 
no way I, I could handle it out of my house. Right. Right. Maybe if I were divorced, right, which may have been the uh, the likely conclusion of if I keep, <laughs> it continued to do that. So they continued, and and it, to this day, it's like huge. It's like yeah, there's going to be like millions of people now. I I don't know how many people did it this year, but I don't think million would be an underestimate. Like uh, I get emails from people from all over and they're like, Hey, just sending you a picture of Memorial day Murph or the Murph challenge as they call it now. Yeah. Um, one of my docs, her brother is a ex seal who's in, um, Ukraine right now. And he sent her a picture of him and his Ukraine soldier buddies doing Murph on Memorial day in Ukraine. Mm-hmm. I'm like, like, you don't have anything you know, more important to do, but right. it just shows you like, the I don't know the the appeal like people just get behind it and it, it's been so cool to watch how big it's gotten and I don't know if you saw the men's health article last year but they do a great story of um, kind of describing its evolution and stuff and it just it, I really feel like it is now a an American tradition and I'm just honored to be to have been a part of that and certainly bigger than I expected but it shows you know, the, the American spirit and just how much, you know, Americans care about that kind of stuff. And I just think it's cool. Yeah. It's a, uh, yeah. I mean, you have this, like, just two sides of it, right. For a Memorial day or, you know, you can't even say veterans day cause you know, true meaning of Memorial day is those right. who didn't make it back. Right. Uh, but like doing something meaningful, but not wallowing or not, or it having a positive, feel to it yeah right so and then there's the other side where you just like you know get hammered and and just it's like another day off from work which yeah. i think is what a lot of americans do but you know right um but yeah i mean you know year after year you know remembrance can actually be kind of taxing yeah for sure it can but yeah. having something that's like productive and you feel like a sense of accomplishment uh, and you get that high that you get after a tough workout and you're doing something meaningful, I think is great. Yeah, yeah. I would agree. And I think probably a million people right. would agree with you. Yeah. yeah. Well, I, we had a, uh, 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 one of my old buddies that I went through the Q course with, I think he's like the first person I've ever known to do CrossFit. This was like back in 05, yeah. the same time yeah. frame. Right. Uh, but he, he, uh, owns a gym in Tampa. Um, his name's Ben. He was, uh, we had him on like a year ago or something. So he explains it to me. I'm not a CrossFitter, but yeah. I should, uh, I should do this workout next Memorial day. Next Memorial day. Yeah. And always, it's intimidating to people when, when you tell them what it is and they're like, Oh, there's no way I can do that. Bite-sized chunks. Right. Like how do you eat an elephant? I tell that to my girls all the time. Like how do you eat an elephant? One yeah. bite at a time. You don't have to do the whole thing. Like, uh, I had, my dad, who's 90, do it last year, right? You modify it. It's not, you don't have to do 90. the whole thing. 90, yeah. And my girls, my, I have twin girls uh, who were nine last year who did it, right? And so clearly yeah. they didn't do the whole thing, uh, but they did enough just to make it suck, right? And so I use that um, to teach them about selflessness, about you know, dedication, about duty, Mm-hmm. You know, like, yeah, it's supposed to suck, 
keep going, right? right. Um, but yeah, you can do, like, I could make a Murph for anybody. Like I said, my dad's 90. I had him ride on the assault bike for a mile, and then he did some wall push-ups, and then he did, like, this modified ring pull-up into a squat, you know, and then into a squat. And, you know, he did that for half an hour. Yeah. And he didn't die, and I was happy, <laughs> you know? <laughs> okay. <laughs> so I think he probably holds the record for oldest Murph. Which is cool, like I said. Uh, so we actually did something at the VA here. Um, we had a little competition to see which service line could do the most Murphs on, you know, for the week of Memorial Day, and people broke it up and yeah. and did it. And for some somehow the emergency department came in second place. I'm not sure how that happens, but uh, no, you probably had a, you know a lot of patience. Yeah, and I, I feel funny, you know, like pushing it as the chief. I'm like, well, you got to get out and do this. So I, right. I kind of just hung, hung back. But yeah. anyway, yeah. what's going to happen if we don't win? Exactly. <laughs> we'll, we'll get them next year. <laughs> Whatever. <laughs> I don't know. I, I thought it was cool. Yeah. Uh, you talked about like the decision to stay with the military. Were you talking about um, that extra enlistment that you did when you started med school or something later on or? You know, you talk about how you thought about, you know, because not everyone we talk about does reserve time and active time. And how did you think about continuing on? And at what point, you know, did it did you have to leave it behind? Yeah. Um, and then, like, I don't know, who who do you look up to and, and talk about this stuff with as you're going through? Yeah, that's a great question. I guess that's why we're doing this podcast, right? Like kind of that transition. Yeah. Uh, well, that's military. our central theme. But, right. You know, yeah. We should probably talk about it then. Huh? Yeah, we can. Yeah. <laughs> great idea. Uh, <clears throat> so yeah, I did the, the four years of that enlistment and then did another enlistment through residency. Mm-hmm. I was still single. Um, and then I was approached by the commander because he knew I was a doc. And he said, hey, we need a flight doc for the PJ team. And I didn't want to be enough. I love being an enlisted guy, you know, yeah. right? They front line kind of doing all the cool stuff. And the, the officers kind of. We know. Right. Enough said. Uh, so I kind of went kicking and screaming uh, into the officer ranks uh, and went from master sergeant to captain overnight, uh, which, <laughs> again, confused some people. Um, but I was the flight doc for the PJ team. And that was a, a trans and that was probably 2007. So a couple of years after uh, the big mish, you know, where, yeah. you know, you, you're not that's a once in a career, if ever, uh rescue mission that you get and you know would have been a a nice time to just hang it up i just loved doing what i was doing um and i was still skydiving so they would pay for me to come out and yeah go skydiving which was cool um having an officer who's not gonna fuck it up right yeah right and that was the other thing i'm like all right well if i don't do it then who's gonna do it right and what are we gonna get that's kind of how i end up in a lot of positions you're like maximus like, I don't want to do it, but I have to. Yes. Yeah. Thank you for that comparison. I don't think I've ever been compared to Maximus, but I'll, I'll take it. Yes, <laughs> indeed. Uh, 
so that was a cool transition for me because uh, there were a lot of PJs that wanted to be doctors. And so I ended up in that role of mentor, mm. uh, which I've always liked. I've always liked to help guide people along that path. And it was a rocky path for me. And I feel like I kind of blazed the trail. And, and so I had this handful of PJs that, you know, wanted to be docs and, and they were all in various stages of their education. And so I'd kind of mentor them and, and, uh, help them out and then celebrating their successes, right? Like every time one of them got into med school and I was like, awesome. Yeah. Like, that's great. And I always told them, you know, if I can do it, you can do it. Cause I'm, Pretty sure most PJs are smarter than I am. Um, and it, it's like, if you can make it through PJ training, then you can make it through med school. Because it's really, you don't have to be smart. You just have to be tenacious. You know, you just have to be able to get your head down and grind it out. Mm. Right? And so I had a... I'm sure like the rest of the just real world experience helps you be a better doctor. There's right. a lot of very smart people. Yep. Trust me, I work with a lot of very smart people who... You know, it's conversationally, it's like <laughs> they know, you know a lot of stuff. I mean, right. yeah, yeah, I mean, I'm sure that uh, coming in there, they make better quality, like you know, doctors in terms of like I wanted to go see this person. They have my best interest in mind. They're a real person, that kind of thing, right? Yeah, right. And it's all perspective. At my first job at the University of Arizona. Um, I got that, I got a promotion. So the boss took us out to dinner and it was me and a couple of other guys and my wife. And, um, I'm like, oh yeah, that Josh Apple, good, good guy to have during a crisis. And I was like, yeah, luckily we haven't had any. And they all laughed, but I was serious. And I was like, I mean, I don't feel like we've ever had a crisis. I mean, we've had multiple mass casualty incidences. I, I worked, uh, when Gabby Giffords was shot and all of those, those people were shot and I never felt like it was a crisis, but some docs, like there's a crisis on every shift, yeah. you know, there, it's, there's just that personality. And, and yeah. so I, I was making a joke, but I guess I kind of made a point with that. Um, so back to the, the mentorship, I, uh, I was a PJ doc for, I forget how many years, but, uh, one of my mentees um, got into med school and then got into uh, residency and then went into emergency medicine. And I said, when, you, when you're ready, because he wanted to be the flight doc for the PJ team, I said, when you're ready, like I'll hold this spot. And when you're ready, I'll, I'll get out and hand that to you. And I thought that would be a good time to leave. Mm. Uh, and he graduated and then I I handed over to him and then I ended up in the med group, just the regular medical group. In the Air Force? In the Air Force. Not sure how that happened. Like to get him into the spot, they had to move me out of it before. And so I ended up going over there for a while. And then two years went by and I looked around like, what the hell am I doing? Like, I'm just like punching key pads, you know, just like doing paperwork and I'm like, this is not what I signed up to do. And I had just been uh, selected for Lieutenant Colonel. And I think I was just hanging on to, to get that. And, uh, and the commander who has been a lifetime reservist, great guy, but just doesn't really understand sacrifice and stuff. 
you know, um, you can get, you can pin on early. And he's like, yeah, you know, I, I just don't think you're worthy to, to pin on early. He said, I'd like to see some more leadership out of you. Mm. I was like, huh. Okay. All right. Here's my res resignation. You know, here's my retirement paperwork. And I filed that next day. And I was like, I should have been out two years ago. But yeah. um, no, you just, you hang on, right? Because you, you just have such fond memories. And But I was certainly done. Uh, and I, in hindsight, I should have transitioned out when Dave Glass, who was the guy that came on as PJ Doc, when he came on, I should have probably exited. Mm -hmm. But it's hard, you know, like, when, how do you know? Yeah. Well, what's it like for like an established doctor to leave the military? How new is it? Your next thing? So there was a lot of overlap. Uh, so it wasn't really an abrupt transition, which made it easier or harder. I don't know, depending on how you look at it, but it was kind of that slow fade where I just kind of faded off into the sunset. Um, so I'm sure I quite understood your question. I, you know, so I was a medic, but I never felt like being a doctor or a PA or a nurse or anything like that. You know, so I've, I have this thing in common with a lot of other vets where we have to like go learn a new skill as part of the transition because, you know, if you were like a, you know, weapons guy on an SF yeah, team, it's right. like, what are you where do, do you need those? Yeah. So I was a doctor in the civilian sector at the same time. Like I was, oh, yeah. I was never just a military doctor, okay. like as a reservist, I was a reserve flight surgeon. So it was like my weekend gig, you know, like I would work in the emergency department and then I'd go do stuff on the base. So I was never just a, an Air Force doc and then transitioned into a civilian doc. So I never really had that transition where I'm like, okay, now I'm a civilian doctor, right? Cause I was, a, I was a civilian doctor when I was a enlisted PJ. Yeah. So I, so there was no real like transition point. Like I said, it was just kind of that slow fade. Yeah. You know, whereas the military is going down, the civilian stuff is going up. How did you feel about the time that the military used to occupy? So I thought I'd miss it. And that was one of the reasons I hung on so long. Um, and it's one of the reasons I really love working at the VA. When I took the job at the VA, it was kind of that time, I don't know if you remember, where the Phoenix VA was in the news a lot. You know, like, oh, people are dying, waiting to get in to see to the VA and, mm. you know, just really bad press, rightfully so, right? There was some stuff going on that I certainly didn't agree with. Um, and I thought to myself, again, I'm like, somebody should do something about this. I'm like, somebody should fix this. And I'm looking around and I'm not seeing anybody but me. Uh, and then the uh, emergency department became its own service line and they needed a chief. And once again, I was like, well, I can complain about it or I can do something about it. Mm -hmm. And uh, and almost instantly, I just felt that bond, right? Because this is, the VA is different. And once again, I do not speak for the veterans affairs and I do not speak for the government. This is my own opinion, you know, uh, but there is a bond uh, that is similar to the military and it's based on the mission of treating veterans. Right. And that has more than filled that void of the military. 
you know, 20% of our, uh, of the VA employees are veterans. And so there's some of that, you know, some of that ribbing, you know, like, oh, Apple, you were in the Air Force. Oh, well, I was in the Army. I'm like, all right, well, clearly you're way cooler than I am. <laughs> you know, just one of those Chair Force guys. You know, I don't know how yeah. many times I've heard Chair Force. I'm like, yeah, yeah. People right. at work ask me about the Army Navy football game. Mm-hmm. I'm like, what? Yeah. Yeah. I, yeah. <laughs> I know, I, right? <laughs> I don't care either. <laughs> like the sports, I don't really get into the sports other than, like mixed martial arts, like that is a sport. Yeah. Two two people go in, one person wins. Right. Yeah. Um, so I like I actually like sports, just not Army Navy. Oh yeah, all right. But uh, yeah, I mean you're fit for are you fifty five? Ooh, almost. Yeah, next month. Oh yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you, oh, you did the math. Me. Yeah, yeah. yeah. You're like looking at me, you're like, got fifty five. <laughs> <laughs> Every year I do Murph. I've done, uh, I did Murph, I think it was like my 17th year this time. And, and I always do it with the body armor that I used on the mission um, for sentimental reasons. And it's actually a little bit lighter than 20 pounds. Okay. Oh, you can take that part out, edit that part. <laughs> but I always wear that. And every year I'm like, man, does this thing get heavier or what? So, uh, so I try and stay fit. I try and keep moving. Yeah. I got little girls. I got a uh, 12-year-old and two 10-year-old that I need to keep up with. Mm. My 10-year-old's already beat me in the mile. Really? Yeah. And, huh? Like what time? She ran. Uh, she is in sixth grade. She just graduated sixth grade. She ran track this first year, like, she thought she'd try out for the track team. Yeah. Uh, her fastest mile time was six minutes, 11 seconds. What? Yeah. Really? Yeah. She must be tall or no. just a... No, just, I, I, uh, no, no. She runs like a gazelle. I, we went out and they, <laughs> my girls have to do a... This may speak to me as a parent, but uh, they have to do a PT test every year. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. It seems like the thing to do. Yeah. Uh, so they have to run a mile. They do max. Do they, get, do they get like child eval reports every year too? Yes, they're <laughs> the CEPs or child eval CERs. Yeah, yeah. They they got threes this year, but there's room for improvement. Okay. No, no, they don't. Um, <laughs> I know when I say it out loud, it sounds worse, but uh, it's fun family stuff, and it's just yeah. a way of. You know, it's like marking your height on the doorframe. Right. There you go. Exactly. Uh, so they they run a mile, they run a four hundred and a one hundred, and then we do max pull ups, push ups, and sit ups, mm-hmm. and then they have to do a swim. And yes, there's an underwater component to that. <laughs> but anyway, uh, so we just went and did our yearly. PT eval and she crushed me on the mile yeah. and the 400 and I just barely beat her on the 100. I almost pulled a hammy though midway through. <laughs> so I can still beat him uh, pretty handedly in jujitsu. Okay. Yeah. So I got that going. Yeah. Some other factors there. Yeah. You know. <laughs> so you did you did diving in high school, college. Yeah. And then you just general fitness and then you got into CrossFit kind of 
like probably when CrossFit just took yeah, off. Yeah, right? early. Yeah. Uh, How old is CrossFit? Like twenty years? I think probably started two thousand five ish. Okay. Maybe earlier. Okay. Yeah. And, and then that, got into MMA when? So I got into CrossFit to help augment jujitsu. Oh, okay. And then kind of got out of jujitsu. And then when my girls got older, got them back into it. And then I got back into it as well. And I used to uh, kickbox as well. And I was doing that in med school. And I came home from sparring one night and I was studying for, uh, for, I forget what class it was, but I couldn't remember things that I had previously known. And I was like, I should call my study partner and ask him about this. And I couldn't remember his name. Mm. And I was like, I got to quit kickboxing. <laughs> like I'm paying all this money. I've worked so hard to try and become a doctor and I'm right. taking blows to the head. Kind so opposing uh, yeah, forces. Right. Um, so I stopped doing that and then I got into jujitsu. And okay. well, how early did you do like just any kind of martial arts then? After diving, like after you got yeah. kicked out of disco class as a kid? No, it was uh, there was diving between there, right? Uh, <laughs> if I wasn't uh, concerned enough about my masculinity, I went into diving, right? The most masculine sport of all. Now they have synchronized diving. Synchronized diving. I'm like, who thinks that's a good idea? And I. Not to throw shade on anybody, but synchronized diving, I don't know. It doesn't really seem like. You know what? There's one Olympic medal for hockey, and it's the hardest to get. You can go to a swim meet, come away with 10. Yeah, right. Yeah. Or synchronized diving. So uh, you were like, okay, I got disco class, I got diving. Now I got to start whooping some ass. Yeah, sort of. Okay. Or be able to protect myself because I used to be a diver. Uh, be able to okay. stand up for myself. So after diving, I was looking for something. Um, and I didn't know, I wanted to do something. And I actually looked into ballet. <laughs> Go ahead and laugh, I know. Uh, for the athleticism, and I thought it might be a good All way right. to meet girls. Okay. Um, but then I did Taekwondo instead. Um, and really enjoyed it. It was fun. Uh, and I got my black belt and I thought I was a badass. And then I went up against a guy that knew jujitsu and realized I had just wasted like five years of my life. <laughs> like, <laughs> all right. I'm like, all right, come on. And I'm like, what just happened? Why can't I breathe? And can somebody help me put my arm back in place? And so then I started rolling jujitsu. And really, jujitsu is great because you can go practically or you can go full speed. Right, you just have to know when to tap, and you know the saying is tap early, tap often. Yeah. But with like kickboxing and taekwondo and stuff, you can't really take those blows to the head at full force. Right. And so this is a way to, you know, challenge yourself, and it's very humbling because what you got is what you got, and if yeah. the the person's better than you, then you know they, then they tap you out. But it's a great learning experience, and I teach you know my my girls do it. Um, because I think it's good that they should be able to protect themselves. Uh, but it's a very cerebral sport, right? It's like physical chess, right? Because you're setting something up to get somebody else to do something so you can counter and, yeah. you know. So my girls are pretty smart. They take after their mother, of course. And so they're getting into it. And so it's kind of, it's really fun to watch, hmm. you know. We used to, 
I don't even know if we were joking around or we were just being meta or what, but, you know, used to box yeah, in the kids, evenings. Or, so, well, in the military, oh, too. Yeah, yeah, we had or, uh, Wednesday night fights when we were deployed. Yeah, yeah. And, you, and you would go, like, uh, you'd get your sparring partner and you'd be like, all right, so we're going 50%? Yeah. yeah. The first- 70%? Like, yeah, yeah, cool. We have 70%. Okay, cool. Two minutes later, you're in the you're in the last round of a Rocky movie. Yeah, right. And, yeah, it's just nothing. That <laughs> Get can me be out, Rock. Right. Yeah, I know. I mean, yeah, same thing. Haymaker City. Yeah, so funny. It is. We did that in uh, in Kuwait. They had a boxing ring, and uh, it was all the PJs. And then the flight crew would come over, and they're like, "Hey, you want to box?" And they're like, "Sure, we'll we'll box." I'll I'll take Apple because <laughs> I was the smallest right. guy. Uh, and I loved that because I knew how to kickbox and I got to punch officers. Nice. Uh, yeah. And they asked for it. Yeah. We had another guest. Uh, his name is Mike Stedman. He was, uh, I think he was a national champ at the uh, Navy Academy. Oh, wow. And uh, he was a Marine. Now he runs a boxing gym in Newark where he works with like a bunch of uh, kids from the city there. Great. But uh, yeah, we've been meaning to go out and visit him and get my face cratered in by some 12 year old. <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah. Talk about humbling. Yeah, I know. You mentioned something else about like um, discomfort or or just, you know, being uncomfortable, injecting that into your life, right? Yeah. Like, uh, you know, I don't want to say like a mantra or something, but you obviously, you know, pass it on to your kids or teach them about the world, you know, through either sport, fitness, or, you know, probably other other means i don't know if you get outdoors other suckiness yeah. Yeah, yeah yeah i think uh as humans we're just soft like we gravitate toward a life of leisure like we spend all day 72 and fluorescent right mm. um and i don't think that's good for us i think it's bad for mental health i think it's bad for physical health and so i think there's got to be uh a small amount of suck in your life, like things that make you uncomfortable, whether that be heat or cold, like hopefully CPS doesn't, you know, Child Protective Services doesn't listen to this. Cause like uh, in the winter time uh, we do Sunday plunge day. And so me and the girls and my wife, I have to get in the pool uh, in the middle of winter when it's really cold and the girls have to stay in until they can take three calm, deep breaths and then they can get out and so there's a lot of physiologic responses that go along with that but part of that is just the discipline to do something where that you don't want to do right just to have that mindset where you're like okay this could suck or this will suck uh but i'm going to do it i'm going to stay calm and that's really the thing like because they get in the first time and they're like screaming like (laughs) i'm like Deep breaths, and you can get out. I always want to do the polar plunge. Yeah. At uh, Coney Island. Yeah. Yeah. Do it. Yeah, I should. Yeah. I've been out of town the last few years, but it's also not an excuse because I've lived there for like seven or eight years. (laughs) I just went to the Grand Canyon a couple of years ago. I've been in Tucson for years or Arizona for a long time. Yeah. I have seen the hot dog eating contest. All right. It is a friggin' jam. Literally. Oh yeah, it's like uh, I mean I have live entertainers. Everything. Yeah, I'm Tony sure. Tony Allen's fun. I it's, bet. Uh, 
it's strange, but yeah, maybe I'll I'll make a note to go do the polar plunge. Or yeah. When we, when we air the episode, I'll just make anyone who listens shame me if I don't. All right. Yeah. On the record. On the record. Note it. Um, <laughs> so I I get in the pool every day, um, winter, summer, whatever. Yeah. Um, you ever go to Oro Valley? That's a nice play. Nice yeah. pool, huh? Yeah. It's part of it is because I built a pool. I built like a, a lap pool. I built a big pool. Okay. And my wife was like, "You better use that pool." Oh yeah. And I'm like, "I'm going to get in it every day for a year." And it's going on two years. I've been in it every day that we've been here. Yeah, um, nice. So long. Twenty five so years. Twenty five yards. Uh, yards. Okay. Yeah. American. Yeah. Right. We don't. No. We don't do metric. <laughs> metric system. <laughs> uh, so I get in it every day and I don't necessarily swim in it every day, but like in the wintertime, I get in it every day. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's like the best and the worst part of my day, right? Cause it sucks. It's so cold, but after a while you kind of start to crave it and thrive on it. And like, when you do it, you'll know like, and you just feel great for the rest of the day. And I do it before bed. Like I'll go get cold and then I'll get into bed and shiver and, Sleep like a rock. Your bed smell like chlorine? Not that I'm aware of. Oh, okay. <laughs> Ask my wife. Okay. Guess. But yeah, that part of it is just being uncomfortable. And I, and that's what I try and teach my girls. And they should do things that are uncomfortable. Mm-hmm. And it doesn't have to be physically uncomfortable, but like... Yeah, that was my I'm, next... Uh... Yeah, sitting down for a podcast or giving a speech. Like, not things that I really enjoy doing. I'm kind of an introverted person. So it takes effort for me to put myself out here like this or give a speech to talk about things that, you know, are hard for me to talk about, to accept a job or uh, I'm not sure how you're going to succeed, you know, whether it's going to work out or not. Like just doing things that are uncomfortable because we tend to get, you know, we're creatures of habit. I think we get stuck in a rut and, and then I think we're on autopilot and, I don't think we grow when we're when we do that yeah you said something like uh the answer is always yes yeah that contradicts a lot of linkedin posts i see where they say learn how to say no to things mm. i think that's a little thinking of yourself as important though but what do you mean when you say that so especially when my gut reaction is hell no not only no but hell no Mm-hmm. Then I always have to stop and think and say yes. Like I, I try to say yes to everything. Um, you want to do a podcast? Yeah. No, not really. Yes, yes, I do. Um, oh, you mean there's people who don't want to do this? I would imagine there may be one, yeah. one or two. It's funny working through people who don't want to turn us down, but they also really don't want to do it. And I'm like, look, I got it. Yeah. Yeah. But- <laughs> How do you, I don't know how you fake it. Yeah. I mean, I feel like I'm doing a pretty good job faking it. No, you're great. It sounds sincere, right? Yeah. I I'm mean, the, totally full of crap. It's the, uh, you know, it's the people who are just like you would want to have a beer with or have a meal with who do the best. It's not the people who have the most speaking practice. It's not the people who have, you know, the best resume or, or you know, what it's just like, you know, that's why Rogan is so right. popular because he just has people on for three hours and he just makes sure that they're interesting and that's it. <clears throat> and the rest kind of takes care of itself. Yeah. 
right? Like I've listened to him. I'm like, I don't know anything about bow hunting, but I'm a, I'm listening for this three hours. I'm like, that's fascinating. Like that is really interesting. Yeah, you can get all your MMA bow hunting, uh, carnivorous eating, right. uh, mushrooms and peyote. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I I tune in every once in a while. Yeah, but uh, he's he's got a, a skill for sure. Um, you just talk forever. Oh my god. Yeah, and he knows. as a host, it's like you you want to stay on topic, kind of, but you also don't want any dead air. So you have, always have to know what the next thing is to talk about. You know, while paying attention. Right. Exactly. What, yeah. Yeah. And the, fact, and be the fact that and now I have my my one sheet of notes, which I usually take and just glance at, you know, just to make sure that I'm on, you know, I'm on. Uh, on the right track, but like he doesn't use any of that. Of course, he's been doing it for a couple thousand episodes. Yeah, right. Uh, we're at the top of the hour, so okay. I, um, you know, you let me know if you have like hard stop or something. I'm, I'm good. But, but there is. One I'm not quit until you quit. You. you quit okay. First. Okay. We should have we should have put on rucksacks right and, and, and talked to each other while we we're walking. And right. It would have been the most horrific listening experience yeah. ever. But there is one question that we ask everybody who comes on the show. Okay. It's kind of our shtick. All right. Um, but uh, I, sh- I should know this. No, oh, well, you probably heard it in the Nelson episode, okay. but you didn't know that we ask everyone. All right. Um, so, who are you today if you never joined the military? Who? That's a good shtick. That takes some reflection, right? Like yeah. rewind. Like I would certainly be more boring. Okay. I'd probably be taller and have more hair. Um, uh, wow. I think I'd probably still be a doctor, but I would be an almost 55-year-old guy that's been practicing for... 30 years now or something and have very limited exposure to some of the coolest things that life has to offer, Mm -hmm. uh, experiences that few get the opportunity to have. Uh, I certainly wouldn't be married to the woman I'm married to. We met in officer training school. I was the flight commander and she was the standardization officer and she had me all squared away and I offered her the job full time after that. (laughs) Uh, But yeah, I think, uh, you know, back to what I said earlier, like I think the best thing that ever happened to me was not getting into medical school that first time, which is what kind of led me into the military. And I'm not joking when I say that that's probably the best thing that's happened to me. I look back on my life, you know, and I'm amazed at some of the things that I've been able to do. And, and um, I don't know if I like, I, I use this phrase, uh, and I think Churchill said it, uh, ordinary men in extraordinary situations. And I think uh, at no time has a, a phrase been uttered that <laughs> applies to me more than that, right? Like, I'm just an ordinary guy. Like, and I think just the opportunities that I've had and saying yes, you know, mm-hmm. or how hard could it be? Those are the two phrases that uh, I think have gotten me uh, to where I am. But certainly without the military, I'm a, I'm a certainly less entertaining, uh, less 
enlightened person. Yeah. Is that point about resiliency too? Because, you know, you, as you said, I think a lot of top performers uh, have not failed at anything, right? I mean, I, I sat in an interview where, you know, I was probably in my mid-20s. They said, uh, tell us about a time when you failed. And I couldn't think of one. Yeah, right. And I just, like sat very sincerely and thought, I, I'm sorry, but I, I honestly just, like, just can't think of one. And, uh, you know, I, like I, I work with young people now who um, haven't experienced failure or, or, you know, they don't have that, like resiliency isn't something that you can go practice. Right. It's, it's what you do with something that has to happen to you, I think. Right. I don't know. It's not, it's like not even a half baked thought, but. <laughs> well, I, th I think you can <laughs> practice it uh, in kind of the way that I like to practice it, you know, like uh, exposing yourself to things that, are difficult and challenging yourself, you know, that Getting out of your comfort zone, you. Yeah. yeah, right. Really out of your comfort zone. Right. Um, because then when you come up against something, then you can look back and you're like, like, this is what I'm hoping for my children. Like when they're up against something, they're like, well, this is a lot easier than when dad made me get in the pool or signed me up for that jujitsu tournament that, <laughs> that I went in, you know, like yeah. stuff like that to prepare them for that. So to kind of, build in that resiliency. And I think sports uh, is really a good way of doing that with kids. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, resiliency is... Letting them know when they lost. Right. And losing is good. Yeah. Like, you don't ever want your kids to fail or you don't ever want to fail. But like I said, from not getting into medical school, it was devastating. I'm like, well, now what am I going to do? Mm -hmm. Now I look back, I'm like, well, now look what I've done. Yeah. Right? So... And it's, I think it's more of a mindset, like looking at it and saying, all right, this door closed. What door is now open? Because that always happens. Like something doesn't work out, then all right, this happens. Like Jocko has got that phrase, good. I don't know if you've heard that. Like he's got this video or like something bad. Like you didn't get the promotion. He's like, good. It's like, we didn't get the gear we wanted. Good. And then finally, the guy's like, I'm not even going to tell you anymore because I know what you're going to say. You're going to say, good. And he's like, that's right. Mm. Because, because you didn't get that job or because of that, you're going to either work harder or you're going to transition to something else. And you gain a little resilience with that. So that's kind of my mantra as well. I, I've stolen it from Jocko. Yeah. Good. Okay. I try and say that like, I'm pissed. I'm like, what? I did. Good. Okay. Nice. Well, this has been a good interview good nice yes. nicely played <laughs> professional move there yeah thanks <laughs> this has been fantastic i yeah. appreciate you uh taking the time and oh let, what's, let a good what's a good uh charity or nonprofit to plug because i know that you're going and speaking in like a week or two right so i'm going to uh new york to uh, i'm going to be the military honoree at the michael murphy uh golf tournament which okay. is ironic because i don't golf um yeah. I think I'm going to just drive around in the cart and bring drinks to people. There you go. Right. I have to earn my keep somehow. Usually they have like younger women do that, but. I'm pretty sure I can make it work. Okay. <laughs> uh, so the Michael Murphy uh, Scholarship Fund is one that uh, is near and dear to our heart. Um, right. They have a website. To, I think it's 
Michael Murphy Scholarship Fund. Yeah, we'll put it in. That'd be um, great. This will likely air after the golf tournament, but we'll definitely put in the uh, yeah. fund. Yeah. Okay. And Memorial Day Murph, Murph Challenge. Cool. That's my charity. That's uh, that's what I like to see people do. Okay. So I'm looking forward to hearing from you next year when you're like, hey, it did my Murph. I will. All right. I'll be on life support after, but I'll... Uh, then you did it right. Okay. Perfect. <laughs> All right. Thanks, brother. Thanks, Matt. Thanks for tuning into this episode of Thank You Now What, a podcast about life after service. Be on the lookout for Josh saving lives as he's done for so many years. Start your plan to do your Murph Challenge next Memorial Day. If you're interested in giving to either of the causes Josh mentioned, you can head to murphfoundation.org or themurfchallenge.com, or you can check our show notes where both of those will be linked. You can also find those as well as other charities we've featured on the show by going to thankyounowwhat.com and clicking our nonprofits page. Our website has a whole lot of other things like other people's show notes and a catalog of episodes. You can also consider donating to the show by using the PayPal or Patreon links on our website or by visiting patreon.com slash thankyounowwhat. Last year, we used some of your donations to cover the cost of doing business for the show, but we were pleased to be able to redirect a majority of the money to those same nonprofits that we love. So please consider a one-time or recurring donation if you're enjoying this program. As always, thanks for listening to us. Please subscribe, rate, review, follow, and join us next time on Thank You Now What.